So we've been in a series, uh, we started this last week, we started a, a brand new teaching series looking at really one big question for us. Is it worth it? Like, is the church worth it? What we do week in and week out, amongst all the shifts, everything we've seen in culture the last number of months uh, through COVID, the growing sense of deconstruction in our moment and in our time, is what we, is what we do here week in and week out, is it really worth it? And the thing that we really drilled down on last week is one simple thing, that church, according to the New Testament, is a gathering. This is what church is according to the New Testament. The word is ecclesia or ecclesia, depending on how you want to say it. And every time this word is used, it's always talking not about a society, not even actually about a community, but about a gathering. I think I gave kind of a framework last week that we would never say we are the wedding, uh, being outside of the wedding, right? Being outside of the gathered wedding. wedding. And that's actually... That's actually the picture amongst all the disorientation right now of people saying things like, I am the church, but I don't have to go to church. It would be like saying, I am the wedding, but I don't have to go to the wedding. That's kind of weird. You with me? It's a little weird. The language around the New Testament gives us a clear vision over and over that church, ecclesia, is a gathering together. And so we, and, and listen, we, what we want to do here is really help distinguish between being a disciple and being a part of the church. I was thinking about my day yesterday. I was on the ice with our boys. It's kind of that time of year with hockey and we were involved some, in some stuff in our community and with our neighbors. And I got thinking, certainly I am the church because here I am gathered with God's people. There's a connection point here. But as I'm out and I'm doing my thing with my life and the life that God's given me, I am a disciple of Jesus where he has placed me. And I think we need to distinguish between that so we actually reimagine the importance and beauty of the church together. We live in a moment right now where it feels like there are a lot of people who want church to be everything but a gathering. Everything but a gathering. But according to the language of the New Testament, church is a gathering. So with that said, can you pull my mic down? It just jumped a bit there, I think. Um, with that said, let's open up to Matthew chapter 1, if that's cool. You guys are amazing. Just don't want any feedback in your beautiful ears. It's good. Good times. Matthew chapter 7. Over and over in Matthew chapter 7, and you can also put your finger in Colossians chapter 3 if you want. Over and over in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus uses this Greek word poieo. And that may not mean a whole lot to you. That's totally cool. I'm good with that. That's fine. But what's interesting is in our English Bibles, this word poieo is translated different words in English over time. So look at verse 12, uh, Matthew chapter 7. In everything Jesus says, treat others as you want them to treat you, for this fulfills the law and the prophets. What about verse 17? Look, at, it says this. In the same way, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree is not able to bear bad fruit, nor a bad tree to bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Skip down to verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine, Jesus says, and does them is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain fell, the flood came, and the winds beat against the house, but it did not collapse because its foundation had been laid on rock. And then again, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like a uh, anyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them sorry is like a foolish man who built his house on sand the rain fell the flood came and the winds beat against that house and it collapsed 
One of the things we see here is that in Jesus' language, over and over in Matthew 7, there's this call to actually do. Sometimes it's translated to do or to bear or to practice. That in the life, and we talk a lot about this as a community here, in the life of a Jesus community, one of the things that we do is we practice his way together. Flip over to Colossians chapter 3. This is what Colossians chapter 3 says. So this is different writer. His name's Paul, writing to churches all across the ancient Mediterranean. This is what he says. Therefore, verse 12, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, he says this, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And then he says this, verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you're called to peace. Be thankful and let the message of Christ dwell amongst you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Beautiful picture here of the type of people that we're actually called to be. We're called to be these practicing, community, uh, this, cr- these practicing people, not only as individuals, but as a community. Now, one of the postures though, and you know this if you've been around, one of the postures that has emerged out of COVID this whole season for a lot of people has been the fact that many have just simply come to the realization that they don't really miss church, right? That there's Here we are, we haven't been able to gather together. Have I really missed it? And with that has propelled a ton of people thinking through, does this really matter? Like just a gathering on a Sunday morning, like you got up, you probably pressed your coffee this morning, here you are, all looking beautiful behind the masks. But I think there's a general question going around, like as we come back, we're a world that's progressed, I have the whole entire world in my pocket, in my iPhone, I have all the information that I need, does this really matter? Like, I think some of us are asking, is church really doing anything for me? Anybody want to acknowledge it? Okay, I won't make you raise your hand. Some of you are like, you're going to make me do that? I would never make you do that, right? Now, this is fascinating to me because it's just interesting because there would be a lot of people, right, who would roll their eyes at a more attractional model of church, attractional methods of a lot of churches. You know, the lights and the lasers, the fog machine, the people holding welcome home, welcome home signs when you arrive to church, the killer, killer Instagram feeds, all of that. None of that is bad. But I know a lot of people right now that are asking questions around the church. They're asking things like, does it really matter? What does this really do for me? And they would look at things like attractional church and they would, kind of av- they would kind of look at it as lame, right? It's consumer church, they'd say. It's kind of for suburban people. It's just churches trying to basically get people in the doors. Which is fascinating because this pandemic, I think, has also shown another type of consumer church posture that's really, really sneaky. So it's not like the lights and, the, the, you know, the lights and everything, the big shiny lights that draw us in. It's really sneaky. It may roll, this type of posture may roll its eyes at the lasers and the lights and the fog machine, but it comes from a posture that says, hey, I haven't missed this, right? Does it even matter? And it's a, it's a fascinating posture because personally, 
I do not miss going to the dentist. Anybody? Anybody? I do not miss changing the oil in my car or eating vegetables. Is anybody out there? Are you with me? Like the vegetable thing, it's not very fun. But here's the thing. I do those things, even though I don't necessarily like them all the time, I do those things out of discipline because it's good for me, even when I don't feel like it. So we may not realize saying things like, I don't miss this, or maybe this isn't really doing anything for me, is actually, when you think about it, is the ultimate consumer church expectation. You may roll your eyes kind of at the church that's trying to put on the best show in town, and I actually think there's time for critique on that. I don't think now's the time for that. I do think there's critique on that at times. But this posture of like, it's not really doing anything for me, is just as consumer to think that everything has the right to feel good and it has to be good for me to participate. I'd say this, for those of you guys that are my age and a lot of you are my age in this room, it's a classic millennial version of consumer church. I know a lot of my people, people my age that will look at their parents and go, oh my gosh, like look at those tactics of trying to get people to come to church. But sometimes we possess this kind of posture. Now, You good? You hanging in there? I think you just got to call it what it is. Now, why are we talking about this? I think we're talking about this because this type of posture doesn't, this, you know, the posture I just talked about, like, I don't miss it. It's not making me feel really good. This type of posture doesn't understand the formational power of the church. And we rarely talk about this. We rarely talk about church as formation. We talk about evangelism, we talk about trying to get people in the doors, but rarely do I ever hear communities talk about formation. Now here's the thing, all of us in this room are disciples or worshipers, every single one of us. You know, discipleship is not mutually exclusive to Jesus. What's fascinating, if you read the life of Jesus in the first century, Discipleship was not mutually exclusive to him. There were all sorts of disciples and all sorts of teachings and ways, and these these rabbis demanded a particular kind of life for their disciples. But one thing I don't think we often think through, especially when we think through post-COVID, is that all of us are disciples of something and all of us are disciples of someone. None of us in this room are exempt from following something. John Calvin, you won't hear many, too, too many John Calvin kind of quotes or references here, though he had some good things to say. He, I think he put it best when he said this, the heart is an idol factory. The heart is an idol factory. Basically, his idea is this, we are all worshiping something, and what we worship is evident by what we give our time and attention to, and is clearly evident by what we love. His idea was, listen, we're all worshiping something. Now, when we talk about worship in the church, we often think of one direction. He would say, if we're not going to worship in this direction, it's going to go somewhere else. And I couldn't agree more. You know, in our cultural moment, some of us are disciples of Jesus. But some of us are also disciples of things like political ideologies. By the way, I think there's an election this week, right? Social media, secular academic institutions, your favorite streaming services. You with me? Governments or money or power or politics, whatever it is, brunch or brunch mosas. I'm down for a good brunch mosa, but you know what I'm saying. Autonomy, the weekly kombucha run to the weekend market, and the list goes on and on. The, the reality is, is all of us in this room are worshipers. We're just, depends where our worship and our discipleship is directed. 
A lot of times I'll hear atheists or agnostics say, you weak people of faith, right? I'll hear people say, I don't worship anything or I don't believe in everything. And you know what I want to say? Yeah, you do, baby. You do. You may not worship the God of the Bible, creator of the universe, but you do because we are all worshipers. And what needs to be defined is who or what we are worshiping. And this is not a conversation sometimes we have when we talk about formation in the church. Because the reality is, is very few of us, and I'm talking to myself today, very few of us pay attention to what is forming us. There's a guy, his name is Jamie Smith, great philosopher, my favorite Christian philosopher, James K.A. Smith, you may know him as. A lot of people have read his work. And he's just done an amazing job in his little book, You Are What You Love, arguing that liturgies or practices are the things that actually have formative power, that these are, there are things that we practice that actually shape us. We tend to assume that to make disciples and form character is to give people information in their head, which will lead them to good choices and become more like Jesus over time. But we, we, if you've been around the church here and the community here, you know that you can have all the information in your head but that doesn't necessarily translate to transformation. If that were true, all you'd have to do is read books or articles and you would be transformed, right? You just get the information in your head and boom, life would be good. I'm sure none of you have ever Googled how to have a body like Mark Wahlberg in their mid to late 30s in this room. Anybody? Okay, I'm the only one. Maybe that was just me. If it was all about information, I would have like a 12-pack. The problem is... It's more than just information in our brains. James K. Smith, I've told you guys this story. He tells a great story of how he is sitting in Costco and he's waiting for his wife and his daughter as they're kind of shopping there. And uh, he's been reading, his wife and daughter want him to read about clean eating. They want him to eat better and kind of think healthier. So here he is and he's reading a book by Wendell Berry in the Costco kind of food court there. And he's reading away and he's got his highlighter and he's highlighting away all the really good parts about clean eating. And then he looks over and realizes that he's eating a hot dog in Costco food court. Now, those are pretty hard to put down. Anybody, the Costco hot dog, it's pretty wonderful. But this epiphany that here I am reading and filling my brain with information about transformation and clean eating, and here's my practices, right? So what do we do when we say something silly? We often say, what was I thinking? But we tr and this is the problem in the Western world. We treat people as if they're fundamentally knowers in their brain, but here's the thing. We are simply not knowers on our own. Smith would point to the church father, Augustine, who I know many of you have heard about, who articulated way back in the day that as humans, we are more than just brains on sticks. That in actuality, the most defining feature of our character is actually not what we know, but what we love, whether we can fully articulate that or not. So with this in mind, when we talk about our loves and our desires, to truly form a person, you have to get to their hearts, not just to their brains, you have to get to their desires to their affections. The other truth is that these loves are not often formed logically, right? We often think of things being formed logically. We may not even know what our loves are, let alone where they came from. We don't love what we think. So we learn to love and to desire long before we ever learn to think logically as humans. And even deeper than this, he would go on and say that for the most part, our loves are shaped by our bodies. 
that our bodies are involved and our emotions are involved in transformation and formation, not just our minds. So he would go on and say, developing our loves is more like learning to drive. Some of you obviously have done that, or playing the piano, or pr- practicing your golf swing over and over. Uh, does, kind of reorienting our loves and developing our loves are, is more like that than learning, al- like, uh, it's more like that than learning algebra or history. Our loves are ultimately shaped by our routines, our rituals, our practices, or, which, or what we call around here and what Smith calls our liturgies, which is so important. Smith uses the term sexual, uh, sexual, secular, sorry, hello, sexu- secular liturgy of the shopping mall. So he talks about all these signposts of things in culture to talk about kind of giving a vision of how our secular liturgies shape us. So he uses the mall. This is what he says. He says, the mall, here's the liturgy of the mall. We enter the sanctuary, have our, fa- our eyes drawn skyward to the vaulted pass through the central meeting area, wander through various side chapels like H&M, The Gap, Build-A-Bear, ugh, any Build-A-Bear people, just if you have kids, just avoid that. They do this thing where they give you a deal for your kid's birthday at their age, so you get a Build-A-Bear if your kid is like four, but then you spend like $80 in accessories, right? So I want, build, my, I want my Build-A-Bear to look like John Tavares. You don't need a Build-A-Bear that looks like John Tavares, okay? Goes on, browsing their different offerings, Smith says, experiencing multi-sensory worship through music and lighting, food, drink, aromas, and the like, seeing icons like mannequins and posters, pointing to an idealized version of the good life, making transactions at altars, at the tills, in order to get closer to it and receive a benediction, have a nice day on the way out. That's a picture that he's just trying to paint of like things in a secular sense that shape us. Now what's interesting is secular marketers have a, at times, have a much more holistic view of the human person than a lot of Christians do, right? Like they recognize the importance of patterns of behavior that form our heart. Everything in a mall that kind of, I'm not, this is not against going to the mall, it's just a snapshot in our culture of everything in there trying to draw in our heart and our loves. And so these patterns of behavior reach for our hearts, not just information that shapes our minds. So Smith would say that we are liturgical animals because we are fundamentally desiring people. We're embodied and we are practiced creatures who love and desire and that love and desire is aimed at something. Now you're like, dude, the philosophy stuff, okay, maybe we're nerding out a bit, all right, maybe just a little bit, but I just think as well, This matters in this discussion because if we want to shape people's lives, we just don't shape it around logic. We need as a community of people, the church, to shape people's loves, which also means shaping their practices and their liturgies. Because the idea is this. There is a difference between knowing something and actually doing it, and there's a greater difference between doing something and actually wanting to do it. That there's power in our habit, in our liturgies, and what we do as a community, and what we do as disciples, these are things that form and shape us. So I hear people say a lot, I wanna change. You have to not just think right in our brains, obviously, no pun intended. You have to reorient our, we have to reorient our lives through daily habit. 
We just don't talk about habits and practices enough when we talk about formation. We've got to be talking about this in light of our lives as disciples. And the funny thing is that we actually get this in a lot of other d- disciplines, if you're with me. So some of you play music, and even up here today, somebody playing music, it takes hours upon hours of formation in practice to get to a place and point where you can play. Yesterday, I was on the ice for couple hours and it's just drill after nothing it can even seem like nothing meaningful drill after drill after skating after skating to get to a particular point where that in the moment as they're practicing it leads them to something and that's deeper in, and greater in their formation as people so that when the time comes to react and to respond in a game those habits have been placed in them hours upon hours of practice so that when the time comes they know how to skate they know how to adjust. They know how to play. And we often miss that. this. We miss the little things, the incremental habits that are things that create us and shape us. Some of you guys know if you're long-distance runners, if you aren't a long-distance runner and we were to say to you, okay, tomorrow you're going to run a marathon, what would happen? You would die. You would literally die. You would probably die, right? So we just think this with like the spiritual journey in church. It's going to be amazing. I can do just amazing things. But any of you know that run long distances, and I've done a bit, fair bit of long distance running in my life, it's kilometers upon kilometers and rest and then kilometers upon kilometers, daily working towards the end goal. And very rarely in these types of disciplines, when you talk about sports or music or whatever, we don't get to a place where we're like, oh my goodness, how did I get here, right? That's not how it works. The hours upon hours, the kilometers upon kilometers, the scales upon scales create and shape us. And I think somehow we think we'll be more like Jesus if we just kind of do, get like a kind of a spiritual zap from heaven out of nowhere. Instead, actually what we see is the daily, and daily formation as disciples and as well weekly formation as the church. Our habits, both good and bad, they shape us. And so we're afraid to say it at times. We worship what we love. As humans, we worship what we love. I'm surrounded by people in our neighborhood, wonderful people who give their life and time and energy into all sorts of different directions because ultimately that's what they love and what we love. And there's nothing wrong with that. I love sports and music and all sorts of different things. But we... We do what we love, and we ultimately worship what we love. Now you're thinking, here I've come, I got up, here I am, I'm sitting here. What does this have to do with church? It's a good question. Is this, when we think about formation, is this really worth it? Is this really worth it? Like if our habits shape our loves, then what does, think with me, what does this say about our spiritual formation as a church. I don't know if you feel it, but I'm surrounded, and I would imagine you probably are too, by this gravitational pull towards kind of questioning, is this kind of worth it? I hear it all the time. Again, we've talked, opening up the series, is what we're doing in this moment, is it really worth it? But let's do this, okay? So this is completely out of the norm. Normally we don't do this, and there's a big fan that's noisy, and it's blowing in my face, so I may have to walk a little closer to you. But here's what I want to do. It's going to get a little awkward in here, I actually want to open it up because I actually think you need to hear from each other. Here's the thing. We have these core disciplines in our community, these core practices that we do. 
And I think what we need to do is ask, how do these things shape us? And so we're going to actually get you to yell through your mask. You don't have to yell. You can talk. But I want to I break down quickly, just five minutes, the five or six things that we do in this community on Sunday mornings together. And I just want to hear from you how they shape you. So let's talk about this. Let's talk about scripture and, uh, sorry, uh, yes, sorry, scripted, sorry, and corporate prayer. So we didn't have it this morning, but normally what we do is we read prayers together. We had a little issue with the slides this morning. How does corporate prayer shape us? Let me hear it. It's going to be awkward if you don't talk. Church could be awkward. That would be weird. Think about it. How does these scripted and corporate prayer, how does that shape us? So are we just bored? Like, yeah, let's throw a prayer up on the screen and get everybody to read it together just to kind of like be vintage, you know, like those cool early church people, right, or whatever. Is that why we do it? How does communal prayer shape us? Say it again. Solidarity? Well, so what do you mean by that? Okay, good. Bringing people closer together. Communal stuff, I like it. Teaches us to intercede, right? To stand with our brothers and sisters. For many of us, even the idea of scripted prayers helps us bring to our imaginations what we could be praying. The corporate prayer side, some of us need just to hear other people pray to develop our own prayer language, right? Like to hear other people pray, this is what it does. We throw these prayers up as a way to shape us, to mold us, to mold our hearts. And it also says for some of us in the room as well that aren't really, don't feel like you're strong and like praying publicly, that we can do this together. The words have been written. We lean in to church mothers and fathers who have written these things and lean into scripture prayers together. What about music or singing? What does that do? Is it just like the, the, like the warm-up part before the guy gets up with the Britney Spears mic or does it actually form us? What does music do? Hey, music guy, what does music do? You came up the 401. Artistic expression, right? Say it again? Yeah, unites people. I like it. What else does music do? It's good. Anything else? We got like a bunch of music majors in, uh, from Western here. I'm sure music does something. Does the music do? What does music do? Come on, Lexi, give me something. Yeah. 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 You're absolutely. This is good. A communal shaping thing. Yeah. yeah? Right. So good. That's so good. God's people, right, like have always joined together singing as an act of resistance to the powers and principalities. I like what Lexi said about just like all throughout even the Old Testament when Israel went into battle, often what they would do is they would sing and worship together. And li listen, songs can do things that sermons and teachings can't. Just, I just think of my kids. They will not remember a word I say here this morning, but they will sing the songs on the way out of God's redemption, love, peace, justice, right? How does, how does that make me feel? They won't remember a thing I say after this half an hour talk or whatever. I'm okay with it. I'm in therapy. It's good, okay? Um, 
But the, these things shape us, these songs, the, the, the list this morning of those words. Do you read and sing those words together? It's not just wasting time. This is, this is communal stuff together. What about reading the Psalms out loud? I know a terrible Sunday to talk about this because we couldn't do this because of screen issues. But like, what do the Psalms do, right? We read them because for some of us, and this is not a judgment thing, you have, your life has been so chaotic this week, you have not had an opportunity to read Scripture. So intentionally what we do week in and week out is we read the Psalms together as a way of, of reading Scriptures together. What about connection and community? Because think about this. The gathering is not just about what we do in this hour liturgy. Think, think about what does connection and community do with each other? It's fascinating this morning. Somebody said to me this morning, they were paired up in our kids' team, and they're, they're meeting somebody new. And it's just the connection, the life together that was already built between people that had just met because they're serving together. I'm all for small groups. I'm all for all, all of that. But it's funny how serving together can often perpetuate this connection and community. And it's a moment where we come together and we work together. And it's intentional. What about teaching? What does teaching do? Hopefully something. Nothing. Nothing. Some people are shaking their heads. Nothing. It does nothing. I'll just say this. This sounds funny. It's not because I'm up here. If there's ever a time where teaching was important, it's now in a post-Christian, post kind of COVID secular moment, and I'm being serious about this. I know it sounds funny. First of all, a lot of people don't know the biblical story both inside and outside the church. This is why biblical theology is so important. We need to take time and slow down. And think about it. Secondly, what did we talk about in the garden last week? What does the Satan come? He comes with not a bazooka or bullets or a gun to proto-human's head. What does he come with? Lies bad ideas. And so one of the things we do is we come around the scriptures to think well, to grow. What about the table, the bread and the cup? What does it do? Every week we get out of our seats and we come to the bread and ta- uh, to the table, to the bread and cup. I know it's old school. Some people have even said that. It's so routine, somebody said to me. And you know what I said back? Yes, it is. And that's why we do it. The, the particular tribe I grew up in, a more Pentecostal charismatic tribe, they have a hard time at times because that just seems like routine. And I'm just like, yeah, we have chandeliers in here. We don't swing for them very much, right? But um, we have this type of, ru- we do have chandeliers here. Isn't this a, you know when they say swinging from the chandeliers, this is like a legit actual, it's not a metaphor here. It's reality, which is great. We come to the table because we don't just experience salvation in our minds, we taste it. In a a couple minutes here, you're going to taste bread and its juice is what it is. But it's a reminder of God's kingdom that Jesus is not only present in our minds and our hearts, but he is present in our senses as we eat together. And you could go on. The list goes on of things that we do in our corporate gatherings together. So my question, I think you can sense I'm leaning. I'm trying to make a point here. Is church worth it? Is church worth it? Well, I would say this, it depends if you believe or not, your habits shape you. We seem to believe that with every other discipline, our habits actually shape and form us, but why not with the church? Like why, why are we in a moment where we have to feel everything just right? You can see where I land, I believe that the gathered church is more important than ever, especially in, in, when we live in this increasingly secular soil. And while people I know often are questioning the church right now, and I've gone through my own deconstruction of this, you know this, I've actually gone the other way. 
I think what we do actually on a weekly basis, our liturgies, shape us more than we will ever know. And so what we're doing in this room is weekly counterformation. The world outside here, and we're not, it's, I'm not, it's not, not, not like the big bad world, but I do think we need to think through, listen, there is a world trying to shape us, and it's not just trying to shape us in our minds, it's going for our loves. And so when we come together in a moment like this, from the bread and the cup to singing songs, to praying together, to reading the scriptures out loud, to coming around teaching, to serving, to the long conversation you're going to have in a few minutes with somebody after the gathering, all of it matters because it's shaping us and it's reorienting our loves. I know a lot of evangelical kids my age that, grew up, that I've, gr- I've grown up with that come from the perspective over the last number of years that we just need to change the world. We need to kind of get everyone in the church, get everyone here. And now I'm sensing, especially through COVID, there's just a lot of people that are tired and they are worn out on this type of agenda. And it's because the gathering of Jesus followers is about formation. It's about formation. Is church worth it? There's going to be people that are not going to buy into this, but I'm just here to say and just lead our community. And we think about our habits in other areas of our lives, and I just really believe what we do week in and week out, it actually shapes us. It reorients our loves. And so one of the things post-COVID I've just been thinking about is this guy, as we get ready to come to the tables here, this guy named Arnold Tornsby a number of years ago, he's a historian, talked about how he believed that civilizations could be renewed because they have a spiritual dimension. And in it, he talks about how little creative minorities, this is what he called them, had the ability to really change the world because they were communities of formation that really lived in a way that drew people in and brought change. A guy named Rabbi Jonathan Saxon a number of years ago actually took this idea and he talked, and he actually traced through the Jewish people that how the Jewish people, both in the Bible and of course throughout history, have been this little group but have had massive, massive influence on the world even though they've been the minority. And I hear this picture of a creative minority and I just think this is, this is the future. This is the future for the church post-COVID. John Tyson says a creative minority is a Christian community in a web of uh, stubbornly loyal relationships knotted together in a living network of persons who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. The church is a place of formation. And as I hear and I think about this idea of being a creative minority, I think of our community, deeply loyal, interconnected, and living as a way not just to try and get everybody in the doors. We want everybody to come, don't hear me wrong. But as a way in which we are formed together into the likeness of Jesus. And so is it worth it? I believe so. I believe in church because it's something that shapes me even when I don't feel it. And even as we come to the table here and we sing these songs to close, we're going to do things that even if you're not feeling it this morning, it's still something that moves and shapes our lives.